Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My name is Jumba McGowan, and my guest today is Tasha Kachiri. Tasha is a highly experienced broadcast journalist and reporter. She has recently become one of Granada Report's newest reporters, having previously worked at the BBC across various news programmes, from Panorama to Radio 5 Live, and more recently, Newsround. As a self-professed advocate for social equality, she specialises in making films for underserved youth audiences. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do and they have done incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. I was really looking forward to speaking to Tasha because last year has been incredibly turbulent for everybody. There's been so much social upheaval with Black Lives Matter and obviously the pandemic. And Tasha has some great insight. So, here it is. Hello, Tasha. Hello. Hello. (laughs) How do we find you today? How's things? Things are great. Uh, Just uh, about to buy a house. So, just been sat here talking to solicitors all day. So... Very wow, interesting. congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> I mean, let's let's talk about that. I mean, you know, that's that is a happy time, you know, for, for people who are listening abroad. Um, I know we have some South African listeners who, you know, they, they rent. Um, and they mm-hmm. have no problem with renting until they're until they're they're quite old and they don't sort of understand our obsession with property. But you know, for British people, you know, given the housing crisis that's going on, it's a big mm-hmm. it's a big deal for us. Yeah, it's massive. We're um, I'm the first in my family to to own a house, so that's that's a really big deal as well. So um, congratulations. Yes, thank you. And I'm from Trenchtown in Jamaica, so it's um, it's it's been a journey to get to this point anyway. So it's it is a massive deal. So yeah, <laughs> amazing, amazing. Okay, well let's 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 take it back to Trenchtown. So when did mm-hmm. you um, make it over to the UK? I came to the UK when I was eight. Um, I think my mum sent me with a friend um, years ago and I've just kind of been here ever since. Amazing. And and Trenchtown is, of course, sung by Bob Marley. Mm, um, yes. Yeah, um, my mum knew Bob Marley, which is random. <laughs> wow. But, um, yeah, because he used to live near where we where where I was born, where my mum lived. Um, so I used to take her to school and things like that. Um, but as as things progressed, especially in the nineties, it became somewhere that was and still is very dangerous. Loads of state of emergencies, loads of people being killed, raped. You know, you name it, it happened. Wow. Um, mm. And I think like some of my oldest memories are of I remember you know someone being shot in front of me or like us um, walking around dead bodies to get to school and things like that so it came to a point where you know I think my mum had been through so much trauma that she just didn't want 
her daughters to have to go through that, especially as girls where, you know, we could be raped or sexually abused. I think mm. it was something like um, four out of five women in Jamaica, like young women, their first sexual experience is that of abuse. So wow. my mum my basically just was like, I will do anything to get my kids out. And, and that's what she did. And thankful for that every day. Yeah, that is, that's staggering. I had absolutely no idea that that was the case. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful country um, filled with amazing people. But I just think because of so much poverty and, you know, striving to survive, really bad stuff happens. It's just really sad. It is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's terribly sad. But, I mean, it's it's an incredible country and in it, it punches way above its weight in terms of music mm-hmm. um, and um, and obviously athletes as well. Uh, yeah. But, you know, s- certainly, like, you know, in terms of the sound that comes out of Jamaica from the 60s onwards is <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, dance hall is my favourite, hands down. I'm a proper mm. of-the-age um, dance hall girl. <laughs> love dancing, yeah. love, love everything to do with it. Food is amazing. And you can find a Jamaican yes. anywhere. <laughs> you, can. you can. I mean, what? why is it? Why is it, do you think, the... Um, uh, the sort of complexion of, of the music there, because obviously you've got St. Lucia and Granada and you've got all, all these other uh, Caribbean mm. countries around Jamaica. Why is it that Jamaica has such an incredible uh, and unique contribution to music? Um, I think, the, do you know what? This is a really good question. I think it comes from um, the struggle of the people and the heart of the people. And they've basically, for years and years, have, that's the only way they've been able to kind of tell their truth through music. That's the only way they can survive and eat. And when you're in a situation where you literally have nothing you know, the community comes in, the community shares everything that they have. You make lighter situations. My mum always says, if you're not going to cry about something, you should laugh about it instead. So it's all about enjoyment and laughter, even in the darkest times. And I think that radiates through the world. And you can tell when, you, when you've gone to Jamaican parties and everybody's happy and excited and just having a great time. And it doesn't matter what's going on, you know, back at home or behind closed door with your finances or with health or whatever. It's about being in that moment and just, you know, lifting your soul. And I, I just love that. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Did you <laughs> did you see that play at um, the National Small Island? It's, it was an adaption of the the novel by no, Helena Evanson. No, I haven't Evanson. seen it. No, I haven't seen it. I think you can still see it on um, maybe on YouTube. I know I know the National posted it on on YouTube. Um, stunning uh, play and book. It's, it's essentially about a um, young couple who go to uh, the UK after the Second World War and how mm. they're mistreated um, and how so one of so it, it centers on um, a Jamaican lady and a white lady and the white lady has an affair during the war with a Jamaican soldier mm-hmm. and in the end she has to give the child up because she just she doesn't know how to care she doesn't know how to care for a for a black child yeah. and it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking you know it's about racism and it's also about um, you know, as, as I'm sure you know as a journalist, the last few years has been a, has been exceptionally rough on that generation, the Windrush generation, mm-hmm. and, and the contribution they've made to restoring Britain after the Second World War has sort of like uh, strategically been forgotten, um, mm-hmm. and and the contribution that Jamaicans have made 
has sort of been diminished and, you know, the 60-odd years of them paying taxes have seemingly been forgotten and then, you know, driven yeah. to Heathrow or made to feel like they're not a part of, of Britain. Yeah. I think it's, for me, it's it's really difficult because, you know, I, I see it everywhere and I do feel like our history has been whitewashed. It's, you know, when you look at, you know, what you learn in school, you always see white soldiers. You never see the Afro-Caribbean soldiers who fought. Mm. Yeah, so my great-grandfather, you know, fought in both world wars and you never hear about these stories. Um, and, you know, black soldiers were you know, taken out of these pictures when they were taking pictures back in the day so that you could see white soldiers and think that they 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 were the ones fighting. And I think because there's that kind of picture of the world, it seems like white people are the saviors and white people did everything. Mm. And yeah. because of that, you know, instead of looking at the contributions of everybody and realising that it's a world for everybody, it's a country for everybody, you know, because you don't see the contributions, then the, then it's easier for people to take advantage of that because they don't know the history. Um, yeah. And that's when, you know, somebody can look at you and say, you're not British because yeah. you're not white. Um, yeah. And it's 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 just really sad and it's, it's really hurtful because you know, we're all humans and, and, and we, we want to build together, I guess, and, you know, create a better world for our kids. And it doesn't really matter where we came from or what we're doing. It's about the fact that we're here right now together building. Um, and I think that that gets lost quite a lot in this hostile environment of, you know, the UK sometimes and feeling like you, you don't belong or you're not British or, you know, your contributions didn't matter I think that was a big yeah. reason for me becoming a journalist um because when I grew up when growing up I didn't see people who looked like me on on the tv um yeah. in real life dark-skinned afro hair I just didn't see it and if you don't mm -hmm. see it you know you don't know if you can be it so I had no idea that there was this world out there where you know somebody from Trenchtown who literally had nothing we came here we had like plastic furniture in our living room because we literally had no money um and now you know I've worked for the BBC I've now I work for ITV and literally like my wildest dreams have come true and I would not have known that because I could have never seen it you know, it just happened accidentally. Whereas now little girls can see me on TV and think, wow, like I can do that. So, yeah. Yes. And that's the, that's the thing. I mean, you know, I the, the sort of shallow grasp that people have of history where they will, you know, happily dismiss um, the contributions of people who aren't white um, in the world wars, you know, which was huge, substantial. Um, mm -hmm. I did an amazing rehearsed reading of, a few years ago of, uh, a play about um, the Indian soldiers in the First World War. Absolutely. Um, and the bravery, certainly on the, the part of the Sikh soldiers, was, was mm -hmm. unreal. Um, and it's all in the name of an empire which seemingly was not grateful, you know, for their, or isn't grateful for their, um, for, for the things that they did at that time. Um, I, you know, I've, I've uh, immense sadness over the last few years in terms of the way the Windrush generation were treated and the way, uh, you know, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement was treated. Mm. Um, but it is, what I do love is that also you had the opportunity to to come here and to make the life that you've made. 
um, yeah. and to be a success. I mean, that's that's wonderful as well. I mean, that is yeah. that is absolutely something that the you know there, there are often two identities to any nation. I feel mm-hmm. you know, and there's there we can we can certainly be you know filled with people who are, are narrow minded and racist, and then you we can be filled with people who are attempting to be progressive and attempting to move things on and 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 have more of that spirit that you were talking about you know about us all being together living together that's what i love about that's what i love about london and manchester is i, yeah. I absolutely get a sense of them being cities which are and birmingham as well to to an extent um that, that are um progressive in that way absolutely i think um when, when i look at my own family and i think it, it harks back to being jamaican as well you know our motto is out of many one people so there's loads of white people chinese people like everybody lives in jamaica and they're just jamaican yeah. there's no you know there's there's not the same kind of like um kind of partitions that there is um here it's just we're all jamaican we're all one so looking at my family my husband who is white british and um you know my 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 mom and my second mom because my my mom's not she hasn't been quite well so as 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 i've been as i've gotten older people i think it you know, it's, the saying is that it takes a village. You know, people yeah. come on and, you know, help to raise me and look after me and guide me through um, at points when my mum didn't have the strength to. And, you know, those people come from all different backgrounds, you know. Um, yeah. One of the people that I'm closest to, she's some white Scottish lady. Um, <laughs> and she's tiny, but she's got... You just don't mess with her. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've got this whole second family that comes from there and... You know, it's for me, and uh, I growing up in Manchester and having been welcomed into the community, but welcomed regardless of you know how I look or or, or what I do, but also having people who are interested in it in my culture and my backgrounds and you know and and these cultures kind of melding together and creating something beautiful. That's how I want everywhere to be, and I know it, it's mm. you know it's that's difficult. But people are human beings, you know, you love who you love and, you know, we're all the same. And I think growing up, you know, I realised that even the people that I think that I have, I don't have, I won't have anything in common with them. For some reason, I will find something to have in common with them. And that to me proves that, you know, race and culture are just one bits of it but we're all humans and it, it just doesn't matter really and um, I think that's the biggest thing that that I've learned over the years absolutely I mean my my as a Londoner one of my you know, my favorite weekends is the August weekend where Notting Hill Carnival is because mm-hmm. it's a celebration of of um, I mean it's obviously you know started as West Indian but you know you know you see the Ghanaians you see the Nigerians everybody um, everyone's out and it's it's so gorgeous it's just you know celebration of of uh, the contribution that you know the the black people have made to to making if britain is great to making it great um, yeah so let's let's uh let's go to the seminal moment for you <laughs> in terms of your 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 um becoming a journalist so you, you've talked yeah. about it before there, there was a moment when you were quite young and um a, a, a an incident was covered and it was covered in a way that was i think what willfully um creating a narrative which was toxic or or, or painting the black community as being thuggish um and 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 you saw that and were appalled by it 
yeah, I think I, I think I think that's quite is quite complicated. But um, yeah, so um, when I was younger, I was about fifteen. Um, this um, guy that I knew because we all hung out together. Um, when you're younger, you hang out at youth clubs and stuff like that, and you make friends through that. He was um, murdered. Um, across the road from my house in a park and it was the biggest kind of thing ever because he was the youngest person who'd ever died like that and the press surrounding it was immense his funeral was huge um but for us he he was one of us um and loads of people came to cover it and um Akon came, I remember this. Oh, wow. Yeah, Akon came to our youth club to cover it and um, journalists came out and there was like, I think there was like five journalists that came out. They were all um, all men and then there was four white men and one black guy. And he, um, they kind of like, the four white guys kind of like shooed over the black guy to us Mm. who were just stood on the side. Um, And I've got like quite a few cousins and they're like big black, black guys you know um but they'd never been in trouble before nothing like that but the guy was so scared of us that he felt like he couldn't approach us or talk to us like you could literally see the fear in his eyes and for me at that point it really upset me because for me people are just people it doesn't matter where you go there's good people everywhere there's bad people everywhere and the fact that one, they thought it was okay to shoo the black journalist over to the black kids, the thugs. Yeah. And two, the yeah. black journalist being scared to speak to us in the first place. I just mm. thought to myself, what narrative? How 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 is he then going to tell our story if he's yes. already scared of us? Um, and at that point, I decided that the reason why that's happened is because he doesn't know where we come from. He doesn't know anything about us. And he doesn't understand that not everybody's a thug that lives in a neighbourhood. It, it might just be that that person can't afford to live somewhere else. Um, and at that moment, I thought, well, if there was more of us in those rooms, making those decisions and coming out to neighbourhoods like mine, then things would change. So I decided that I was going to be a journalist and make that change. Um but yeah, so <laughs> out of anger came all of yes. this, I guess. <laughs> well, it's powerful. That's an immensely powerful um, moment and an event. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, you know, it's coming up to what would have been um, Jesse's, who's the um, the boy who passed away, well, was murdered. It would have been his 30th birthday um, in May. Um, and we were talking about that and his death has changed so many lives but I think had that not had it not been for that moment I wouldn't be where I am today and I wouldn't have made the choices that I did yeah so you go on from there you 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 have a um an internship at the BBC at 16 yeah so um so you you were quick (laughs) off the mark yeah but actually this was because of my dyslexia which is hilarious okay Um, so um at 16 um I was meant to get like um a stars a's and b's at GCSE um but I learned everything it just did not translate onto the paper so instead I got like c's d's and an e 
And my mum was so disappointed. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to go to uni. I don't want to go to college. Like, I'd rather do anything else than have to go (laughs) into school and have to read again. Like, that I'm over it. And um, I think I was, you know, one of the things that I was really good at was... um, media studies at school I wasn't good at the writing stuff so I ended up getting a B in that but I was really good at practical stuff so like you know artsy stuff and making things work and technical things so um I got a B in media studies that was the only thing that I was decent at um so this apprenticeship with the BBC came up um and I went for it um connections wrote my application form so I didn't have to write it myself so that was a winner um and yeah, and it paid. So <laughs> I didn't have to go to college. So yeah, went, went and did that. That was, yeah, oh my gosh. And that absolutely changed the trajectory of everything. Um, got there and the first time I went for the interview, I met this lady who is amazing. She's um, called Cheryl Varley and she's a journalist still to this day. Um, she tells amazing stories. She's um, a toxic girl so like proper Liverpoolian yes um really really just a beautiful person and she looked at me and said you should be on tv you should be a journalist and basically Mm. for the last 10 10 15 years she just basically held my hand and guided me through um and yeah I think I really wouldn't be here without her but yeah that's where my journey started (laughs) I love that I mean let's Let's shout them out. We've we shout them out a number of times, but seminal people in your life, people who have such a long and lasting effect and actually see something in you that um, you don't see in yourself. I mean, respect to those people because they are they are wonderful. Absolutely. She had faith in me when I, I didn't have it in myself. And at 16, I didn't know that I was dyslexic. I just thought I was stupid. So I was thinking, I don't understand why I can't tell my left from my right. I don't understand why I can't say what I mean. I don't understand why my words get stuck. You know, I don't understand why I just can't read a book. And, and I don't understand why reading out loud has you know, it's so anxiety filled and I just can't read. You know, I was never a bad kid. So I I got decent grades throughout. So yeah. no one, you know, no one thought much of me not getting, you know, to, to, to some people, B, C's, D's and an E is, is still decent. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, so no one thought of me as dyslexic or struggling or anything like that. I think also I kind of like tried really hard to compensate. So I'd work, you know, if somebody else was doing something, it might be easy for them to do it, but I'd I'd have to work two or three times harder to get the same yeah. result that they're getting. So I'd work that two or three times harder because I just thought that was normal. Yes. Um, but yeah, so because of that, no one noticed that I was dyslexic. No one said anything. Um, it wasn't until... Uh, second year of uni um and I ended up going to uni yes I did which is like why would I even do that to myself (laughs) but but, um yeah second year of uni I went like I think shout out to Leeds University in the first place because they literally took me with no (laughs) A-levels they took me with like literally I rang up this lady and I was like haven't got A-levels haven't got anything but I want to be a journalist and I want to be on your course because I heard it was one of the best (laughs) and she was like okay (laughs) 
So, wow. um, yeah, so they, they took me with nothing. And then um, second year, when it was getting really serious, um, I couldn't, I just didn't understand how I couldn't keep up with everybody else. So everybody else would be having like 14 sources for um, an essay um, and I'll have like four. And I would have like tried so hard to read those four sources um, that yes. I had. Um, and I just, you know, I couldn't get my words out and I couldn't get anything to make sense. And my my results were coming back really low. So I was getting like like threes, I guess. Like, yeah, like a third um, in all right. my written work. But then I was getting like firsts in all my practical stuff. Um, yes. And it came to a point where um, I decided that this wasn't for me. It wasn't a good idea. I don't know why I decided to go to uni in the first place and get a degree. Um, and I was going to quit. Um, and I went to my course leader, who's Kate Watkins, who's amazing. And she was like, I don't want to be funny about any of this, but I think you might be dyslexic because I've seen you written work. And my son is also dyslexic. Um, so I think you should be, you know, should get tested for this. And I was like okay what like what else you're just trying to get me to not quit um yeah <laughs> um but I went and got tested for dyslexia and then I realized like all the things that they were saying and all the things that were there were the were, were issues that I had and I hadn't realized like I got tired <laughs> all the time during the day and I hadn't realized I got tired because the lights were on because with dyslexia you have like I think it's early in syndrome and you have you know a lot of other things that sometimes can come with it so like light sensitivity and you know all these other things so I just thought I was like lazy and then I turned the light yeah. off and, and and I was fine you know and um wow put a blue piece of paper over something and then I could read it and and that was fine and learning how to order my you know writing so like when I found out that I was dyslexic it was literally like I, I, I think it it's like a weight because before that I just thought I was really stupid you know and I felt embarrassed and I felt like you know everybody else was better than me because they could read and they could do all these things and and I couldn't um so yeah it felt yeah, like freedom ask. I was gonna ask like what is yeah that that was it a sense of relief when you when you had a name for this um yeah Steve the head of the charity has has said the amount of countless times he's had people come off the street and get a diagnosis they've they've actually cried because yeah. they would say thank god I just thought I was stupid yeah it feels like freedom. And I think the worst thing about it is, um, and I still get those looks today, it's when you can't do something or you can't get your words out or, you know, whatever, and you're in these rooms with these people who are, you know, really articulate and bright and stuff, and they look at you like you're stupid. And yes. growing up, I had loads of those looks. Or if you say, oh, I can't spell a very simple word or can you spell it phonetically? And that look, actually, it just it just feels like, for me, that look kind of like buries me in this like yes. ridiculous hole. Um, mm. That look of like, you obviously, why are you here? How did you yes. get here? Because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're saying. Um, and I know it's not words, but that look says it all. Yes. Um, and, you know, I still get that look to today, but I can say, I can say now, um, and that's why I'm proud to say, okay, I'm not stupid, I'm dyslexic. So just just help me out and we'll get yeah. going here. 
and and yeah. and 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 that's that's all it is but for years and years and years I got that disappointed look and when I found out that you know there was a reason behind this and I wasn't stupid it literally felt like I could fly which is yes. mad um, yeah. but yeah <laughs> it's great I mean you know, for, for me personally, when I when I get um, people say, I had no idea you're dyslexic, you know, if we do a, a rehearsed reading or something, because mm-hmm. I, I can pick up scripts now very quickly. It's, yeah. it's, the great, it's the greatest compliment because, yeah, I mean, there are countless times when, as you say, people give you a look because they know socially it's it's rude and potentially unkind for them to say, are you, are you kidding? Yeah, you, basically. What, yeah. what do you mean? Um, <laughs> and then... For you to be, you know, to be able to go, listen, I'm dyslexic. Um, I'm going to get there. This isn't it. You know, this isn't the show, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen you read the news. I would mm-hmm. never know that you were dyslexic. And that's all that's important, right? It doesn't matter. It's a process. It's, yeah. it's not like you have to be perfect every single time. It, you know, you're perfect when, when the lights are on and, and they mm-hmm. say action. But um, when you're gearing up for it, you don't have to be perfect. No. And that I think that that's the, the biggest thing because um I think a part of being dyslexic is um having people who are supportive of that. Yes. So for me, you know, I've always been practical and I've always been fine. So um which was amazing. So when I found out that I was dyslexic, I was at a low two two at university at the time. And that's why I wanted to mm-hmm. quit because I was going to, you know, what's the point in going to university if you're going to get a third? That, that was my thinking. Um, yes. So when I found out and they put everything in place um, within a year, so third year happened because it was at the end of second year and I'd gone up to a high two one because everything nice. was in place to support me. So mm-hmm. basically... You know, and I talk to a lot of people now who still hide the fact that they're dyslexic. But for me, if you're saying you're dyslexic, then that means you're not using it as a crutch, but that means there's there's a name for it so that support can be put in place to help you. Yes. So me coming into work where, you know, it's heated environments, it's really quick turnarounds, it's having to um, write things perfectly all the time and, you know, all that type of things. There was just people, extra pair of advice checking my work. Um, me practicing, practicing as well. I think the biggest thing for me is practice. Practice makes perfect. So mm. um when I started working at Newsround in particular, um, everything had to be perfectly written and simply written. So we take um, things that were really complicated, like the, you know, the Iraq war, and then we'd have to explain that to kids. So you'd have to read it, understand the ins and outs of it, and then write it in a way that's so simple that a six-year-old could understand. Yes. Um, and that, for me, was just years and years of practice. And now it gets to a stage where my script writing is great and me writing articles is great, but it wasn't great when I first started. So it's just mm. perseverance, perseverance. And I think people think, oh, you might not be able to get to that point, but actually you do. You you get mm. there and then you think, oh, I, I, I don't even know why this was hard. So, yeah, yeah I think when you were talking about me reading the news, my biggest thing was the auto cue. Yes. So, you know, um, I think I started trying to read the auto cue four years ago and um, I couldn't read it. 
I literally just could not read it. I couldn't get any words out. I was get you know, I was anxiety filled. I was getting palpitations. Like I just couldn't do it. And yeah. um, one of the, P, the one of the kind of like PA said to me, you know, you won't be able to do this because you're dyslexic. You, you you can't read an autocue. Like you won't be able to 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 read the news on live TV. That's that's impossible. Um, and I went to the BBC's um, kind of like they have like an academy. So like a training academy. Um, right. And I basically just said, listen, like I'm dyslexic. This is this is what I want to do. How do I do this? And they sat with me and they basically were like, okay, try this, try that, try this, try that, try like all these different things. Um, and one of the things that worked, which was really, really simple is, you know, you've got one of those like coloured, the coloured things that you put over lights, the coloured gels. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my colour for, for the early in syndrome is blue. Right. So, so yeah, so we got one of those coloured gels and put it over the autocue. And it literally was like I'd put on glasses and it was fine <laughs> and I could read it. And then I started speaking to, um, to other people who were dyslexic producers and things like that. And they were telling me about how to... It's all kind of like a fact-finding mission of about what works for you. So yeah. the... The biggest thing they told me was that, you know, when I write my write my scripts, I should write them in short sentences. So yeah. the shorter and the shorter and the simpler that you write the script, it means that it's easier to read. And then from that, I realized that with the autocue, um, words changed. Like I don't know why in my brain, like I, one word could say something and then it could change to another. Um, so then what I'd do with those words is I'd put them in, um, capitals. So I'd have to stop and read the word. Um, so yeah, so that took me four years to get to the point. And every weekend or every two weekends, I'd go in the studio and I'd get my mates to kind of, I'd befriend all the gallery staff and get them to help me, um, <laughs> by giving me free time. And I'd go into the studio and I'd read the autocue and I'd read the autocue and I'd read the autocue. So that took, took me four years. Um, and then when I got this job, you know, my boss knew I was dyslexic, but she still like was like, yeah, we, we want you to do this as long as you feel comfortable. And to me, like them having that trust in me to, to do that. And, you know, I wasn't perfect. And, and and it is fine. And you see newsreaders who aren't dyslexic, who mess up all the time. And that's what I have mm. to keep telling myself. Like it's, you know, it's difficult anyway. Um, yes. But, you know, having that support, having people at work who just literally just believe in me and support me and are just you know amazing about everything and it's always you know how can we help how can we support um you know it, it's it's massive and I think that's the biggest thing about working at Granada in, in particular because at, at the BBC I was behind the scenes so if I messed up you know because I was producing and directing and stuff if I messed up no one saw whereas yeah. now <laughs> Granada have literally <laughs> had faith in me to put me on TV where I could become a meme. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's massive, but the support is there and the encouragement is there. And, you know, it means I can go out there and I can inspire people, not just by being a black woman, but by being somebody who four years ago could not read that auto cue. But now I'm reading it every day. And that's inspirational. It really is. I mean, you've moved seamlessly through so many of my talking points. It's almost <laughs> like it's almost like you do this for a living or something. Um, so I, I mean, you know, you you beautifully detailed um, 
how it is on a practical level that you handle your dyslexia, which is great. And I, and I, I really think that would be really instructive for, for young people who are trying to find their way with it. Um, practice make perfect. Um, uh, find a colour. I mean, we've talked about this before. There's a wonderful guy called um, Ross Lynette who has designed software called Recite Me where you can essentially, on your computer, change the text, change the background because everybody has a colour yeah. that, that actually can help them read up to 25% better. Not, you don't even have to be dyslexic. Yeah. Um, everybody has a certain colour and it speaks to... There are many types of just uh, of intelligences, and it's it's society that has to adapt to us, not the other way around. Because you know, uh, you're not any less um, adept at your job because you have dyslexia. It just means you, there are certain practical things that you have to utilize in order to to do it. And as you say, it's a high pressure, high high stress job as it is. So even mm-hmm. if you don't have dyslexia, it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's it's. It's horrendously hard on on just a daily basis. <laughs> it's um, you know filming, editing, traveling the world, traveling all across the country at the drop of a hat. You know, yeah. long hours, unpredictable hours, unpredictable everything. It's it's difficult in general. Um, yes. But I think when and also you know writing is only a small part of that. So when when they're hiring me, they're hiring me because, you know, I'm great at getting people to talk and I'm great at, you know, producing people and I'm great at filming and doing all this other stuff, you know. So for me, I know that those are my strengths and those are fine. So that's why I try to work so much on my dyslexia. And um, it, it, it has now come to a point where a lot of people don't know, even when I write or I send emails. Um, and that's I don't... Great. I don't really have to tell them, but that's just literally through practice, practice, practice. Yes. That's certainly my experience as well as an actor. The the longer I can have with something, the more it sort of settles into my my consciousness. The, the more yeah. I can work it and work it and work it, then the the more secure, the more confident I feel. Yeah. It's it's massively tiring because if you think about it, like the average person, you know, might read 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 something you know two or three times and they'll get it down you know I would have had to do it maybe like 10 <laughs> 10 or 15 yeah. um mm-hmm. it is tiring and I think that the worst thing about it is you know you know that you have to work so much harder to be just as good as somebody else who doesn't have yes. to do as much work as you you know yeah. Um, and that's just having to factor that in. So when I'm being judged, I'm not being judged as someone with dyslexia. Like if I've written something on the website, they're not judging it as, you know, Tasha's got dyslexia. They're judging it as that mistake's been made. Do you know yes. what I mean? And yeah, I and that that's 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 the standard that I have to work to. So I still have to work 15 times harder or whatever than the average person just to make sure that we're on par. But also I don't want to be on par with the average person. I want to be better than the average person. So it means I have to work longer and harder to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely doable if you want to achieve whatever you want to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think a key part of that, sorry, is, is, is that you have something that you love that yeah. you are, you know, it's tough, it's hard, but you want to do it. It's something that you love. It's a passion. 
because you Absolutely. wouldn't spend the hours that you do and traveling at the drop of a hat to, mm. to do something that you didn't love. And it's about encouraging people to find that thing, whatever it is. Absolutely. I um, You were talking about Windrush and um, I worked as an assistant producer on a documentary about Windrush and um, took these two children to Barbados and Jamaica to see where their grandparents came from. It was amazing. And I got a text, um, I think a week ago from one of the mums who thanked me for doing the documentary and said to me her father had died from a heart attack literally the week before. And now she has that documentary where she can see him with his grandson living and and having a beautiful life and for me those are the stories those are the human beings that that's why I do this yes so you know I think when you find your why you can you can kind of move mountains Um, and my why is about just speaking to people and finding out stories and kind of giving somebody an opportunity to tell their story um and that's, that's the biggest thing, because I think there's a lot of shouting going on in the world. And there's a lot of people saying nothing. Um, and there's all these people who are quiet, who feel like they can't tell their stories, who feel like they can't, you know, stand up and be counted. And for me, you know, I've been one of those people on so many levels, being an immigrant, you know, being young and black, you know, being someone with dyslexia who has to struggle through, you know, being a young carer, like all these things where I felt like I, I, I didn't have a voice. So for me, if I can give a voice to somebody else, if I can let them tell their story, that's the most beautiful thing I can do for someone. It is. And, you know, it's it's deeply poetic. You know, your, your journey into journalism started because you felt like um, a story wasn't being told, a truth wasn't being, you know, being aired. Mm-hmm. And then you've you've dedicated your life to it. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm sure it's, it is because you enjoy it and it's and it's something that you love. But yeah, I, I have to the the sentimental romantic that I am. I, I can't <laughs> not um, I can't not mark that. Um, yeah. So 2020 explosive yeah. year. Obviously, everyone listening to this knows that. But um, mm-hmm. for you, um, a year of success. Um, you know, things moved. You're, you're in a great position now, where you're, you know, buying your first home, which is wonderful. But um, mm-hmm. m- uh, you know, moves made in your career. Um, you know, it's deeply sad events um, that happened. But um, mm-hmm. there's, I don't know how you feel about it, but there's um, uh, just sort of moving through and pretending that there isn't an issue with racism in this country. <laughs> um, you know, is I'd like the people who are subtly or not subtly to, to make themselves known, you know, so we can know who they are. And, and certainly that's what 2020 did um, mm. along with, you know, lots of other things as well. But yeah, let's, let's talk about 2020. <laughs> mm, gosh. Um, I think 2020 was massive for me on so many different levels anyway, because um, I think I was, I was at a stage in life where I was, you know, I'd been working for a long time and I kind of like forgot my why a little bit. You know, forgot, you know, what, what I was doing and why I was doing it. And yeah. um, uh, coronavirus happened and lockdown happened. And, you know, it meant that I could see my family and, you know, you know, spend quality time with the people who I loved and, and who meant a lot to me. So um, that was massive in itself. And then George Floyd happened. <laughs> and then I think that on so many different levels... Um, it really affected me because all my cousins are boys. 
mm-hmm. you know. And I, as a journalist, no matter how, you know, I still walk into offices and people think that I'm the cleaner and will say to you, to me, I think you're, you know, I thought you were the cleaner. Or, Ugh. you know, people will still, you know, when I rock up to do some filming last year, even, they'd be like, so where's where's the BBC crew? I'd be like, I'm I'm here, like I'm here. Mm. Oh no, well, who else is coming? You know? So for me, it's like my my black skin, no matter how much money I have, no matter how many accolades I have, like for some people I will be still seen as a black person and as a person worth less. So I cannot be the manager of this group. I can't be the intellectual. So that's something that I've always had and I've always thought, you know, and if I stood up for myself, I was always seen as the angry black woman. Whereas Mm. if, you know, a white man stood up for himself, it would be, you know, he's assertive, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. so that was always something that I had to deal with, but for the first, you know, I'm, I'm in an interracial relationship now, an interracial marriage. Um, my husband for the first time had to unpack that, you know, he's blonde, blue eyed, <laughs> white man. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, he looks like a posh boy as well. Like he looks very, you know, very posh. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if I can explain that, but he does. So <laughs> he, um, you know, I'll come home from work or whatever and he'll be like, oh, um, I'll say something to him and, and he'll be like, oh, well, I, I wouldn't be treated like that. You know, why why would they say that to you or why would that happen to you? And yeah. when we first started going out, he didn't get, he didn't understand what white privilege was and he's from a council estate and he's working class. So he was like, I wasn't born with privilege. But the privilege is being able to not have to deal with the consistent racism that I have to face, not being called the N-word when you're on the bus, you know, not being overlooked, not being treated like crap, basically, no matter where you are, who you are. Um, Mm. And when George Floyd happened, I think he realised that his children were going to be black. (laughs) And it was the first time that he'd realised that racism is basically a threat to his family. Yeah. Um, And I think that's something that he'd never had to think about, you know, he'd never had to think about how other people saw him or anything like that. So for us, it was unpacking of that and that grief and that kind of mourning of George Floyd was basically him realising that when he has kids and if he has a boy, that could very easily happen to him, even in the UK, because stop and search stats don't lie. You know, the police... Even though, even it's fascinating to me, but even though statistically white people carry more drugs than black people, black people get stopped more than white people. Mm -hmm. You know, even though statistically white people are more aggressive to the police, this is statistics, like you can Google this. Um, White people are more aggressive to the police. Police are more aggressive to black people. These are statistics, you know, they're, they're out there for whoever to see. So for us... You know, I'd always known that I was black and I'd always known that I had this, um, you know, the struggle that I just had to deal with. But for him, it was a whole new thing. And it literally looked like, (laughs) this is horrendous, but it looked like he basically died inside, you know, when he realised that this was going to be the future for his children. Um, And that was really, really difficult, I think, for both of us. Um, But what was great was, you, you know, 
as journalists um, and as a few journalists around, especially in the BBC, we decided to come together to create something. So we created a um, a, a, a programme for Newsround explaining what racism was to children. Mm. And um, that kind of broke my heart because... You know, I grew up in Jamaica, so I didn't experience racism until I came to the UK. Um, But when I was speaking to a lot of the kids, they were like six and seven. And, you know, they would be telling me how, you know, they're, you know, people would say that they look like poo and, you know, and and they'd get followed home and stuff like this. And these are these are kids like these are these are kids that that should not be their reality. Um, But being able to put that out and and have their voices heard, that was amazing. And then off the back of that, I was asked to produce and direct my first kind of two-part documentary about what it was like to be young and black in the UK, which was amazing. And it was my dream. Like my dream is to like make documentaries and and just tell stories. Um, so basically off the back of that, I just found families and and you know, did that. Um, yeah. which was brilliant. And now that's up for a, a pretty big award, which is excellent. Um, yeah. That's doing oh, really congratulations. well. Thank you. Yeah. So, what's, uh, what's the name? So we can, um, um, we can uh, throw a link in the, uh, the, the uh, pod uh, I notes. I don't even remember, you know. I'm terrible. This is a part <laughs> of my dyslexia. I think it's something Stanford Award. Right. I shall find it and let you know. Please do. We'll pop it in the uh, the notes for the pod. Yeah, so it's like it's an ethics award, um, and it's a big deal, and we've been shortlisted for that. So that's 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 a beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, like the families were amazing, and they were just so truthful about what they'd experienced in life, and it was just really worth kind of doing. And then I got married, so that was helpful as well. <laughs> oh, big, 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 so, yeah, big. 20, yeah. 2020. 2020, got married. Love. Yeah, got married. Um, there was like six people there in a pandemic, um, but it was amazing. And then um, I got the my new job on screen reporter at ITV. And that was like a dream come true. I'd been working for 14 years to do that. And a big part of that was making sure that I was being able to, you know, able to be a, you know, a good journalist and be able to write and read and find, you know, find stats and, and do all that. And somebody with dyslexia, like it's, it's, it's crazy how much effort you have to put into being good at all these things. So Mm. I think all of that culminated in me getting this, this, this amazing job. Um, And I've been there now six months and I absolutely love it. That's so beautiful. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I mean, just to to speak on 2020 just a little bit further and, and uh, the sadness I feel, the sort of, you know, uh, uh, you, it won't have escaped your attention. I do not doubt the the recent finding that there isn't uh, institutionalised racism within the UK, uh, which is completely baffling in the context of COVID when, you know, black people are far more likely to die from COVID. Uh, mixed race people are far more likely to die. Um, black women are far more likely to lose children in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you say, all the all the rates of, um, you know, black men being stopped for no reason. Um, and it's this sort of like... Uh, it's almost as if, to, to use the context of football and, and, and Manchester, as if like you were asked a bunch of Man United fans whether Man City were were rubbish. And surprisingly, they all come back saying, yes, Man City yeah. are rubbish. You know, 
you ask a bunch of um, uh, racist people whether or not they think the UK is racist, and surprisingly, they come back with a uh, with a finding that um, it's not in fact racist. Uh, yeah, sad. I think it, it is sad. It's, it's it's for me. It's I'm just angry. I'm angry. I'm like, yeah. what what's the point in doing this if you're not going to properly do it? No, and I think exactly. That's the biggest thing for me, and the thing is. Racism, especially in the UK, is not like racism in America, you know. Racism in America is in your face. But for me, racism in the UK is when somebody tells me that, you know, my face just doesn't fit. Yeah. And that's why I didn't get the job, you know. Yeah. You know, it's somebody commenting about how ghetto my name sounds, you know. Mm. It's it's women... (laughs) It's somebody looking at a picture of me and my friends smiling and saying that they'd be intimidated by them, right. you know. Yes. It, it's 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 that kind of thing, and it's me having to defend myself over and over, or be too nice, overly nice, so that somebody yeah. doesn't report me for being angry <laughs> when I'm yeah. at work, you know. So for me. Getting all the opportunities that I've gotten, yes, I've gotten to this place and, you know, in the report they'll say, oh yeah, but, you know, black people have, you know, risen in spite of, but why should we have to rise in spite of, you know, Mm. and I have gotten to this pace where, you know, I am doing well, but the fact still remains, you know, there's, there's two, there's one black person, me, in my office, you know, and another person of colour as well. And we've got some trainees, you know, the, the, yeah. there's not that many of us. And, you know, my my work, you know, work, my job and the people around me try so hard to be so diverse and try so hard to tell these stories. But the facts are there's so many things on the outside that are limiting, you know, black and brown people from getting into these places in the first place. Um, yeah. You know, that even with the help that, you know, the, the things that BBC, the media industry, ITV are doing, you know, if we don't have government support in getting into schools and, and supporting young black and Asian people in schools in the first place or supporting them in the workplace before they even, you know, or even at university before they get to the, you know, the workplace then, then, then how can we have a diverse society? And that's, you know, that race report was supposed to help with all that. Because the thing is, yeah, I can still go outside and be stopped because I'm in a nice car and I'm a black woman. It doesn't matter mm. where I worked. Do you know what I mean? And that yeah. all feeds into the workplace. So it's, it's, it it's not that simple. And, and, and it makes me angry and it makes me hurt because I will have children, you know, and mm. I see my nieces and my nephews and they have to come into a world where their skin colour is used against them. Yeah. And, 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 and that shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case. And, it's, and it does, it deeply saddens me. You know, you, the conversations that has, have to be had in this country with, you know, if, if your child is, is black or mixed race um, or not white are not conversations yeah. you have to have with young white children. No. You know, it's, you know, there might be, you know, an incident in a restaurant where someone says something to you, you have to be aware of this. Or, you know, if you're, if you're walking down the street and you're a young man, you have to be wary of the police. You know, that's never a conversation that my parents ever had to have with me. Never. No, no and, and that's... And you'd be naive, I think, if you were, you know, the, the, the parent of a, a child, you know, a, a, a child who wasn't white, 
If you didn't have those conversations, you could be accused of you know not doing your job as a parent. You're not preparing your child for a world which, at the moment, is you know is um, uh, treating somebody else's children preferentially. Absolutely, I think I think that's the biggest thing. My mum had those conversations with me. Like I knew that I had to work harder. I knew that I had to be better because no one was going to give me anything, number one. So when they talk about, you know, diversity and I guess affirmative action and stuff like that, and people think, oh yeah, you know, that person got the job because they're black or whatever. (laughs) We might've got in the door because we're black, because there's like 20 other white people there. But at Mm. the end of the day, in order to stay in that door, you know, we have to fight all these microaggressions, how I have my hair, how I speak, how I react, who I interact with, you know, all those things. To be able to stand here now, I've had to make so many compromises in my life that, you know, the average other, you know, white person hasn't had to make, you know. And I'm for me... You know, it does make me stronger. But looking at my children, I don't want that to be something that they have to live with. Because at the end of the day, I think we should all be truly equal. And if we're all truly equal, it means that we start on a place that's truly equal. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 also a debate around, you know, what's happened with Sarah Everard. You know, the the realities of like a, a young woman you know, leaving a fairly affluent part of London and you got snatched off the street. And mm-hmm. and it's the same, you know, it's it's not the same, but it's it's the similar in the, you know, it's um, a consideration that a woman has to make that a man doesn't, you know, that she might be unsafe at that hour. You know, I've never had to concern myself with that. I've never th- thought, um, oh, I wonder how I should dress in case someone rapes me on the street yeah. or someone stabs me when I'm walking down the street. Um and it's it's frustrating because it's as you say you want everyone to start from the same place. But, yeah. Uh, the reality is, you know, they're not at the moment. No. And the thing is, you know, it is human nature because we are kind of what's the word that I'm looking for? We're tribal, aren't we? You know. Yes. So we're designed to stick to our groups and and, and fear fear the other group. You know, that's that's tribal. That's in us. That that that's that's just something that we have. But but for me, you know, what I look at, well, the way I look at things is, you know, if even though trouble isn't at my door today, it might be there tomorrow. And if mm. I don't stand with somebody and fight against their issues, then how can they fight against mine? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like we're all Absolutely. in this together and it might not, you know, it might not. It might be that, you know, you're fighting on the issue of race, but one day you might, you know, be fighting on the issue of um, feminism, you know, yeah. or or anything. And and we need to come together as a society. You know, I'm not... And, and there's so many intersectionalities of it all, you know. Yes, I'm a black woman, you know, and I'm a black woman first because at the end of the day, when somebody sees me, they don't see anything else about me bar the fact that I'm black, you know. Yeah. So straight away... People, loads of people, you know, I've had people say to me, you know, I thought you were intimidating. I thought you were, you know, not a very nice person, but you're the nicest person I've ever met. And that's because (laughs) they've literally judged me as soon as I've walked into the room, you know. And, you know, but I'm also a woman. So I care about women's issues. You know, I care about the planet. I care about children. I care about all these other things. And I think we should be fighting for it all. And I think when we come together, you know, what people are scared of is, is it's divide and conquer. 
Do you know what I mean? So when you can divide us all, so we're looking at our own little bits, then we can't make an impact. But if we've got the same focus, then that's how we can make an impact. And that's what we saw in 2020 when people were focused on George Floyd and what was happening. And so many people were focused regardless of your race and understood that this wasn't right, that we started seeing changes made, you know, in policy, mm. in in governments, in 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 different different um, different. Ah, oh, see, I've lost lost my words. Um, <laughs> I think. Well, yeah. you're in the perfect place to get yourself back. You know, we're, there's going to be no judgment here. So, <laughs> so you go yeah. ahead. Yeah, um, yeah. Just just in different companies, you know, you see that. Um, but yeah, so for me, the biggest thing is coming together and all fighting for for the same causes and I think that's the only way we can move forward because it's just it isn't right it isn't right you know I mean I would I would completely agree with you I would completely agree with you I just my 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 take on it if if for want of a better word is that you know um, as you say, it is about divide and conquer, and there's uh, an immense threat to the powers that be when we all get together and yeah. put aside differences. But you know, you see certainly, like in the last five years with Brexit, um, the the white working class in this country mm-hmm. uh, are frustrated and understandably so, right? You know, the yeah. opportunities are not coming. It's getting more expensive to live in this country. Absolutely. Working wage has not come up. You know, the ability to get a house. Is diminishing because no one's building new houses. They haven't mm-hmm. built new houses properly since 2010. Um, and, you know, supply and demand means it's just getting more and more expensive. And I can completely understand people's frustration. Um, mm-hmm. But they're interpreting it as, you know, like, well, again, that age-old thing of, you know, immigration is what's is what's causing this. If it wasn't for immigration... But Im- human beings move. That's what we do. It doesn't matter where we go, we move around at any one stage because we need to, you know find safety, find security, or pursue the dreams and, and um, passions that we have. And, mm. um, you know, it, the, the sooner we can we can come together, yes, it will be pow- more powerful. But, I, I you know, there, there is a bit of me that thinks the powers that be does, do not want us, want us to come together in this way. You know, when people, when people um, come together in a coalition, like, mm. for example, you know, Fred Hampton of the, the yeah. Black Panthers, or, or when it was that Martin Luther King was talking about unifying um, poor whites and poor black people, that's mm-hmm. when they get shot. Yeah, <laughs> that, absolutely. That's when um, things happen like that. Well, that's the thing. And and I think me and my husband talk about it all the time because he's the white working class that the governments are saying, you know, are talking about. He's got two mm. degrees. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, you know. So yeah. when they talk about white working class, it's one of those things where it gets bro- broken down into all aspects. And for me, and this is me being absolutely honest, when they take talk about white working class, I think about opportunities. And for me... I think I was very clued up to being able to take opportunities because I knew where I came from and I knew that there weren't any opportunities there. And in the UK, I see so many opportunities, even for working class people, because I came here, I didn't have anything. We were working class. We were in a working class neighbourhood and I took the opportunities that were given to me and those were given to white working class kids too. Do you, do you understand? And a lot of yeah. these white working class kids took those opportunities and made something of themselves. And it's the mm. same with the black working class kids. So when when they talk about white working class, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's um, 
And I think it's not just working class people. I think it's, you know, I think it's black working class or any working class, you know. For me, sometimes working class people who feel like they can't get these opportunities just need a guiding light. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Someone to help them along the way, you know, because I don't believe that the opportunities, you know, aren't out there. I I don't believe that, you know, I believe that Mm. there are opportunities out there, but sometimes you don't see them or they're really hard or, you know, they're difficult to take that step. Um, And that's what what I'd say, say, say with anyone, you know, because I could easily say, oh, you know, because I'm black, you know, I couldn't have gotten to this place because there aren't the opportunities there. But there are the opportunities there if you go looking for them, you know, Mm. so... You know, and I do have these conversations with my husband and it is the same kind of thing because he is white working class and he's done really well for himself. So I guess that that's how I look at it. You know, my motto Mm. is take every opportunity that comes your way. You'd be frightened at where that might bring you. Mm. And that absolutely doesn't take away from there are issues and there is discrimination, you know, and... Mm. Being white working class is hard. Being poor in general is hard. It's not easy. Of course it is. No. It's hard. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's your be all and end all. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I want to be clear about that. It doesn't mean that at all. But I do think there are certain people who who benefit from uh, those those people not realising those opportunities are out there. Absolutely. Um, and they, absolutely they can then monopolise right. monopolize those positions because people aren't aware or they're made to feel like that isn't for you. Yeah. You know, that isn't something, you know, it's, it's quite fascinating. I don't know whether you've heard a Carla talk about this, but he talks about mm. um, when West Indian children have, you know, they come to, to Britain from the 50s onwards, the longer mm. they were in contact with white working class children who had been conditioned to feel like, you know, this isn't for you, this opportunity mm. is not for you, then the, 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 they then pulled away from education, whereas like West Africans and um, Asian children, their parents still believe in the power of education. They still believe that that's the best way for, mm. for you to, to make something of yourself and pull yourself out of poverty. And, and they're getting the highest grades as a young, um, mm. I think, a, a West a- a African first-generation kid who's got the highest IQ of a, of a child in the UK. Yeah. And it's about, it's about, you know... Uh, yes, you can be incredibly fortunate and have people around you, that village you're talking about, who mm. can say, this opportunity is something for you, it's for you. Mm. Um, but not everyone has, um, that. Is, has that, is lucky enough mm. to, to have those people in their life. Um, Absolutely. I, I just want to, I also want to be clear, obviously, and we've talked about this, that this country is an amazing place to make something of yourself. And, and, and there are progressive people who are not racist, mm. but sometimes... Sometimes the UK is not honest about, as you say, the sort of insidious brand where they um, they pretend they're not racist, but they 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 say things like that are you know microaggressions. Yeah, you know, it's not like it's not like the US, but they sort of they sort of they again want to if I want to make it a class thing, they sort of they want to paint like uh, if you're a racist, you've got a skinhead, and you know yes, you're, yes. you're probably working class, and you probably say a word. But it's not about words, you know. As you say, it's it's about um, not being given that opportunity or, or being made to feel like you're being angry when you're not or needlessly yeah. aggressive or that the way you look is is um, is problematic. That's just yeah. as um, as corrosive to someone's self-esteem. And it's not about, um, you know, uh, uh, be, 
being working class and being, you know, like Tommy Robinson. I, I mm. feel like that's people's, that's what a racist I'm not, is. I can't be racist. Yeah, I'm not frightened of the Tommy Robinsons of the world, but I am frightened of, I don't know, Linda down the road that thinks that, you know, I, you know, I, I walk into a room and I can't possibly have the accolades that I have you know yeah. that per- that person could be my boss that person could be the one standing in my way of getting you know getting further up the ladder you know Tommy Robinson's not standing in my way you know no. <laughs> T- Tommy Robinson doesn't affect my life but there are these no. closeted people who have a lot of you know I think the word is like I think is, is it blind uh, biased yeah unconscious bias yes. Um, And they have biases about, you know, people and those biases and everybody has it. Like everybody has bias. I have bias. My husband has bias. You know, everyone has it. But it's being aware of the biases so that when when you come into decision making, you can think about, okay, why am I making that decision? Is it because of that bias? You know, analyzing it. But everyone has biases and the people who aren't aware of their biases, those are the people who scare me because then those are the people who, you know, would stand in the way of me succeeding in life or my kids succeeding in life so for me you know I'm not bothered about Tommy Robinson or the racist person (laughs) who says the n-word to me down the street like that makes no difference to my life because I'm driving my nice car and I'm living my best life but when it's my boss who thinks they're not racist who then thinks oh that opportunity wouldn't work well for Tasha and they, they you know they're giving it no reason or that doctor I don't know if you saw this but Um, on LBC a while ago I think it was a couple of months ago a doctor called up and it was about the coronavirus and he said that um, there was another consultant that was on on his ward and there was two two men a black man and a white man and they were had coronavirus and they were exactly the same like you know health wise they were both going down downhill everything both the consultant decided to put the white guy on a breathing machine and didn't put the black guy on a breathing machine you know and the consultant who was black asked the consultant you know why why did you make that decision and he couldn't tell he didn't know why he made that decision you know Mm. And and that's because biases, studies show that, you know, white consultants think that black people need less medicine, think that black people are stronger, think that black people don't, you know, need the same support as white people. So therefore they're more empathetic to white people, you know, mm. and that would have meant that that man would have died, that black man, when he was just as bad. And to this day, that consultant can't explain why he made his decision. Now, that guy isn't necessarily you know he's he's not racist but he's been conditioned to believe these things and that could mean a life or death situation so for me you know those are the people that I'm scared of those people who have their you know my life in their hands um and 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 that's sad because the easiest thing to do is just acknowledge that this is a thing and this happens and then just try hard to not let it happen yeah I mean that's completely understandable because i mean you you society tells you no this is a doctor right he's done six seven years of medical school surely he must be he treats everybody equally but as you say these 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 innate um unconscious biases they affect yeah. everybody and and we all have them and, and it's it's about being aware of them and, and being honest about them yeah they're their base securities who knows you know that they could be from you know, when that lizard brain, you know, that, that sort of, you know, the, the, the fight or flight danger thing that we all have inside our brains. 
that we've mm-hmm. been conditioned by, um, that some scientists believe are genetic. Um, it's just about going, okay, I thought that thing, but, you know, I know that's wrong. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I know that that's, that's not true. This isn't a real or present danger. That's, that's not right. And that might be a result of my, the environment I grew up in or, or what have you. But, you know, as you say, it's those people who pretend that they don't have those things when they do that they are the most dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I just think, you know, as, you know, just as a, as a person, you're obviously gonna, gonna think these things. It depends on how you grow up. It depends about what happens to you in your life. And, and that's absolutely fine. And I also get people who are like, oh, white privilege isn't a thing. And, you know, I get people who are like, well, why should I care? Because it doesn't affect me. And I get that because, especially in the UK, racism is so covert that sometimes I have to think about if that person's been racist towards me, which is actually mad. So what I do, like my husband will clock it now before I do. So my thing is someone will do something to me and then I'll, I'll, I'll go through all the, like the reasons as to why that happened, you know? So, you know, was I not good enough? Did I drop the ball? You know, was I actually being angry? Was, you know, whatever else and then for me if it comes down to I can't explain it so then that must be the common denominator when whereas my husband now picks up on it straight away but for me it's also a fear thing where it's like oh I don't want to you know I don't want people to say that I've got a chip on my shoulder and you know I'm just you know this race card not a thing not a thing but you know oh she's pulling out this race card so when people are certain ways towards me I do think about it in depth so when I do come out and say you know that person has been racist or that person has said that or that's a microaggression I know it's a microaggression because I've thought about it for so long and I get people who you know this doesn't affect them so so why should they care you know, they, they're, they're working class, you know, they're struggling to feed their families, they're not getting the opportunities to, you know, and, and, and it is this thing where we're blaming all these people, we're blaming all these immigrants, you know, but at the end of the day, the government cut the funding, you know, mm-hmm. yes. not, 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 you know, the, the doctor or, or, or the person at the corner shop or whatever, yeah. like the Polish government did that. Yeah, yeah, the government did yeah. that. They did that and now you're blaming, you know, somebody else. And then you're talking about losing your jobs. You know, you wouldn't have been a doctor anyway. Like, that's not going to be your job. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, you know, the Polish fruit pickers are coming in and doing the jobs that the British people don't want to do. So, you know. Absolutely. it, It is that thing where, you know, things are happening and it's easier to blame your peer or someone next to you rather than looking up and realizing what's going on. And I get that. But the thing is, at the moment, you know, we're talking about black lives and then it'll get to Indian lives and then it'll get to Chinese lives and then it will be white lives. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because what's happening is it's us against them on the bigger yeah. scheme of things. You know, it's it's working class people who are just trying to make it, no matter what colour, you know, where you're from, what you're doing. It's us, we're, we're one, it's not a colour, you're working class. So for me, it's like, at one point, you will be next. And if you don't fight for the little guy, when your time comes, who's going to be there to fight for you? Absolutely. I think I think that's it. 
I'd, I'd love people to take that away that um, if we improve a lot of everybody and each other, Absolutely. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not going to diminish how important it is that you know, that there's a, you know, people um, should be called by the pronouns that they like, and and you know, like companies should do more to be more yeah. supportive of of minority um, minority groups. But it's it's that feels like sometimes a bit like set dressing. You know, it's like okay, yeah. sure, we'll just we'll we'll throw a little post up on Twitter, or you know, all right, we'll make a um, a run of um, a uh, you know a, a t-shirt. Yeah. You know, if the more we can, you know, help each other in a more meaningful way, which is, you know, uh, governments giving more money mm-hmm. and um, more opportunities being given to everyone, Absolutely. the better will be. Because it, I think people, they're quite happy for us to talk about shallow politics, you know, like about, um, you know, uh, as I say, doing posts on social media. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like little things like that. Yeah, that's not going to change the world. You know, that's not really going to help people's lives get better. Actually, they're going to go. There's going to be more resentment towards you know Black Lives Matter and things like that. You know, yeah, it's and, and that that's not what you want. You want a movement where everybody is benefiting from it on a social level, and it's not just surface. Because the more, if, we, if we're distracted by surface, then the work we're doing, uh, it, it won't have any effect. But also, we're we're all in this together. And what I find fascinating, which, like, is this whole concept of race in the first place. You know, my, my nephew is white. <laughs> you know, he looks white. My niece looks white. You know, she has a black mum and a white dad. You change races in two generations, if that, you know. Yeah. So race, colour means nothing you know and the same people who were saying you know you know black lives matter is awful and all this stuff the same people that could potentially have grandchildren who are black yes and then it'll be at your door and then it'll be your problem so to me this whole concept of race is just wild because it it shouldn't even matter you know, we're human beings, we're people and we love. And that's the bottom line. We should truly be in this together, you know. And I I, I was brought up in a community where it's, it's like that, you know, my community, we were all in this together, both in Jamaica and in the UK, you know, a village raised me, you know, in Jamaica, if one person didn't have food and another person did, we would share our food. Everybody ate, you know, there'd mm-hmm. be 10, 11 people and we'd find the food, you know, everybody ate. And and that's how I'd, I've always grown up. And I think, especially being in an interracial relationship, I think some it's becoming more common but it was this concept of everybody's welcome, you know, everybody eats. So that's how I live my life. So for me, you know, it fascinates me how somebody else wouldn't, you know, somebody else wouldn't fight for me because I know that I'd fight for them. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter about how they look, where they come from, you know, what colour they are. Like, they're people and they deserve to be fought for. Absolutely. Absolutely they do. Um I want to ask you just just to finish us off. I mean, this is yeah. all good stuff, and and if we're gonna, <laughs> and we, we have to do a different podcast about about the the fallacy of race and and how that was a, a British construct in the in the sixteen hundreds. Oh, yeah. Of course, um, that's a huge thing. Um, let's. Can you? I would love to hear about what you believe to be the key characteristics f- that make a good on-screen journalist. 
Um, I just think, I think it probably is. Um, you have to like people. I think that's the biggest thing. I love people. I will talk to yeah. anybody, which gets me into trouble all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it literally gets me into trouble all the time because I make friends just like sat at the bus stop. Um, but I think that's <laughs> the biggest thing, talking to people and being patient to listen to people's stories. So like I've talked a lot on this podcast, but um, usually I'm sat listening a lot. Um, and you find out the most amazing, interesting things about people all the time, um, mm. just by listening. So I think it's just, I think the, that's the biggest thing, you know, you have to love people. And from that, you know, everything else can be taught. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to end the podcast. Tasha, thank you so much for giving us thank your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been brilliant. And I'm really glad that you're doing this podcast because it's really important. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk-McGowan. My guest today was the reporter, Tasha Kachiri. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please go rate, subscribe, leave us a little review. It really helps us grow. Thank you very much.